Ready to level the playing field in your investment journey? Introducing QQQE, Direction's NASDAQ 100 Equal Weighted Index Shares ETF. With QQQE, you're not just investing in big players, you're investing in balance and diversity. The power of equal weighting seeking equal weighted exposure to all of the NASDAQ 100 stocks. Say goodbye to market cap dominance and hello to a balanced investment strategy. Visit Direction.com now to learn about QQQE. Direction's NASDAQ 100 Equal Weighted Index ETF. Equal opportunities, equal gains. Direction, get out of the ordinary. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's investment objective, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. An investment in the fund involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Distributor, Foresight Fund Services, LLC. ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. Some guests appearing on this program may also be financial sponsors of ETF Prime. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors, who's the third largest ETF issuer in the country, and one who is celebrating a pretty big milestone because the Spider S&P 500 ETF, ticker SPY, that just became the first ETF to cross over $500 billion in assets. Uh, it hit that mark last Thursday. And despite some calls that SPY may lose its uh, ETF asset crown to IVV or VOO or VTI, I, I don't know who might have made that prediction last year, uh, but it still has some uh, $60 billion more than the next closest competitor, which is IVV. So Matt and I will talk about that. And then related, of course, one of the big reasons SPY has hit $500 billion is because of performance, right? The S&P 500 continues surging following last year's 26% return. Uh, it's currently right at its record high. And obviously one of the big storylines here is that this performance has been mostly driven by the so-called Magnificent Seven stocks, which now comprise nearly 30% of that index. And that's generating a lot of discussion right now because there are growing concerns over concentration risk and whether investors should be moving away from this top-heavy market cap-weighted index. Interestingly, Matt Bartolini did a full deep dive into this topic last week, and so we're going to discuss what he found, and we'll get into whether investors should be doing anything differently right now. Also joining me, will be Yang Tang, CEO and co-founder of Arch Indices, 
and Arch Indices Investment Advisors, who in October of last year, they launched their first ETF. It's the Arch Indices VOI Absolute Income ETF, ticker symbol VWI. So this holds a uh, mix of dividend stocks and bond ETFs, and they use a process called Variance Optimized Indexing, which is where the uh, VOI in the name comes from. This is a propri uh, proprietary methodology to optimize the weightings of the holdings within the ETF, with a goal being to ultimately maximize income and then minimize expected volatility. And so we'll get into the construction of that ETF. I want to hear where uh, Yang thinks BWI fits in a portfolio, and then we'll briefly discuss the current market environment as well. Now to start this week, I have on the line with me Zeno Mercer, Senior Research Analyst at Vetify. And going back to the top heaviness of the S&P 500, a big driver of those returns in the uh, Magnificent Seven stocks, uh, which has obviously caused this top heaviness, that's been artificial intelligence and all of the buzz around that. I mean, you look just last week, NVIDIA had a monster earnings report. And then the following day, that stock added $277 billion in market cap. It's just remarkable. But uh, Zeno is an expert in artificial intelligence and certainly companies like NVIDIA. And so we're going to find out how uh, he's viewing all of this right now, including his thoughts on this uh, so-called concentration risk in the S&P 500. So uh, let's chat with Zeno now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. The cyclicality is kind of being upended by those nearshoring and rearshoring trends that we're seeing in America. We've got the enabling technologies and the most promising applications of those technologies. Zeno, great having you back on the podcast and great finally getting to meet you in person at uh, Exchange a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I have to say the same. It was great to actually meet in person. Uh, I think we've only connected over voice, so uh, good to see your, your wheel, um, which is something that will probably be harder to tell in the future, but uh, we don't have to get into that today. But yeah, no, great to be here today. Great to be back. And obviously, you know, NVIDIA has been uh, quite the story. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and so look, you and I aren't going to focus specifically on any uh, ETFs this week, but you know, to your point, obviously, NVIDIA and really the rest of the so-called Magnificent Seven, they're clearly having uh, an enormous impact on a number of ETFs. And I think in some cases, uh, causing investors to look for ETFs that actually don't own these stocks, right, due to concentration risk and, uh, and valuation and, and those sorts of things. But I thought it might be interesting to hear your perspective on all of this, given, obviously, your expertise in AI. And, you know, last week we did have this earnings report from NVIDIA. And as I noted, that stock then proceeded to add a record $277 billion in market cap the following day. And I, I looked this morning, NVIDIA is now up nearly 60% for the year after being up 240% last year. And so I, I guess first, you know, let's start with that, uh, that earnings report. What, what did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I, it's kind of not a surprise. We're in a world where game theory is positioning all the biggest companies and governments in the world to um, position themselves in this AI future. I mean, you're looking at the flack that Alphabet and Google is getting for 
not up to par AI models and, and interfaces coming out that's crushing their stock 4% in a single day. I think people realize this is table stakes. So uh, the, the fact that AI GPU investments are, are going up ahead of expectations shouldn't be surprising anyone, at least in this phase of where we're at. So just kind of looking at the numbers, NVIDIA was up 156% year over year to over 60 billion 2023 revenue mostly driven by growth and data center, uh, kind of these AI GPUs, um, which going back to those mega tech firms, they, they are over 50% of data center revenue. So, you know, there, there are people outside of that getting access and allocation, but it's primarily mega tech making investments to build their own AI models and also have inference, which is when we're actually interacting with it. Like when you're chatting with ChatGPT, that's the inference layer, not the training on the background that got it to the point where it could do that. Um, they also have gaming revenue, you know, laptops and GPUs and other services and segments like professional visualization and automotive. It's funny to think about all this because in 2022, you know, NVIDIA was down over 45% and everyone was focused on them losing allocation uh, to Ethereum uh, going from proof of work to proof of stake. We don't really have to get into that, but essentially switching to a form of not needing GPUs and gaming going down. And, and, and obviously, ChatGPT changed the game. And it's not just people using it, but it's people building out or organizations building this out for the future and, and hedging themselves. I, I mean, really, we can call this a, a techno hedge. <laughs> so as you said, NVIDIA is up 230% uh, year over year. Um, and its earnings growth is, 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 is phenomenal. Um, and, and just kind of Going to the basics, you know, you know, I, I kind of said, you know, they have automotive and other areas, but their main game, and they've been investing in this for a long time now. I mean, going into nearly a decade um, uh, on on the AI focused GPUs, but um, you know, they're what's a GPU? Why is this? Like, why is Nvidia eating eating cake here? Um, you know, they, they've got the the best in class uh, AI enabled GPUs uh, called their Hopper series. Um, and these are being put in data centers, and, and they're millions of times more powerful and capable versus something like Intel CPUs uh, for graphic, pro- you know, graphic processing demand and analytics, um, where like a CPU is better for Excel and data analytics and processing. Um, that's why you know most laptops are very focused on the CPU side, or you know what most people are using on a day-to-day basis. This is of course kind of changing. Um, so yeah. Zeno, we don't have to get into your uh, views on the valuation of NVIDIA's uh, stock right now, though you're more than welcome to comment on that. But I think for most investors just on the outside looking in at this space, I I think naturally they start thinking about, okay, what do the competitive dynamics look like here moving forward? And, you know, obviously other companies, I I don't think, they're not just going to sit back and let NVIDIA dominate, including some of NVIDIA's biggest customers, right? From what I've seen, their own customers are working to compete with them on uh, on some of these chips. You mentioned the the training and then the inference side, and and you can talk a little bit about that. But how are you viewing the competitive dynamics here? Because I do think that plays into whether investors should be paying up for a stock like NVIDIA. Yeah, so it's it's clear that the market's going to keep growing. Um, the semiconductor market itself is is probably, and, and many people are suggesting, will grow to over a trillion dollars by 2030. With um, you know AMD CEO recently, and that's one of the key competitors here, 
you know, expects the AI chip market to soon be a $400 billion market itself. Obviously, semiconductors are not just for AI chips. They're for sensors, computer vision, cameras, basically, you know, controlling powertrains and electronics and robotics and automation. There's a lot that goes on um, in the semiconductor world besides this, but those aren't as expensive. But that's kind of the point is that those have become more commoditized. So really, it's a game of maximum efficiency for each purpose um, value. And so, as I said earlier, this is right now the purpose is game theory around training these proprietary models and building a moat around being able to be and remain the interaction layer for humanity. I mean, that's what every one of these companies is trying to be. Um, you've got Google with Gmail and Google Search and you know Microsoft with Windows and Bing and Azure AI Cloud. They're all trying to protect their moat and build new moats. Um, and so, you know, NVIDIA has clearly been the main beneficiary here. Intel has been lagging. Um, you know, that's clear by their market cap, which has been going up. This is kind of like a rising tide is lifting all boats moment right now. But we're going to start to see some separation as we enter kind of this next phase. As you pointed out, um, all of their customers are trying to either work with competitors like AMD, which has solid products that are coming out soon. Um, they're also working on building their own uh, specialized AI chip for their own purposes. Meta's doing this, Microsoft's doing this, Tesla's obviously been doing this. Um, so, so clearly, like, we're, we're going to start to see pressure on not just their competitive positioning, but also the value for each purpose. Um, so, you know, if you think of just the concept of price to earnings, right, NVIDIA is at about $2 trillion right now uh, based on increasing expectations of earnings. You can say they're going to continue growing, but I think, you know, the relative value for, and, and I think you, I think many people are discounting the value that other players are going to bring to the ecosystem. Some, somebody like AMD, um, something to think about also is just the, the inference cost and the connectivity. Inference is the actual live processing. Now we're going to enter a tangent of a world where uh, we're going to have on device versus cloud. Big tech is probably going to want you to be, on the, or on the cloud, because that'll give them fees and, and payments, where AI is getting some really good models coming out that are lightweight and powerful that can run on device, um, and they can use connectivity when they need to. But companies like Qualcomm and MeteorTech are actually better positioned for that tangent um, that will be coming down the, down the pipeline soon. And we're starting to see AI chips uh, and AI devices coming out. So I really think, you know, there, there probably is a little bit um, like the whole market, very bullish on, obviously, but I would say, in, will NVIDIA be the champ it is, you know, a year or two from now? That's TBD, but definitely would suggest some hedging against other possible outcomes coming through. I mean, you, this doesn't, we, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's interesting because uh, over the weekend, I'm sure you saw this, the Wall Street Journal had a, uh, a full article on NVIDIA and the competitive dynamics, and they touched on exactly what, what I think you're hitting on in that. NVIDIA right now is is dominating this market on chips used to actually train the models um, versus, you, you mentioned inference, these chips that are used to actually process requests. As you said, like when you type something into chat GBT and there are more players on the inference side, I think it's an easier market. And so what the Wall Street Journal was getting at is as we move more from the training piece into the inference piece, that could be something that is a, uh, a headwind for NVIDIA just from a competitor standpoint. I don't know if you want to elaborate on that. If I got that right, <laughs> you're the expert here. No, I mean, you, you nailed it. I mean, you sound like the expert too here. And I, I think, um, you know, right now, the utilization of AI tools is skyrocketing. That's clear. 
it's mostly a world of AI tools for humans, including coding. Um, to, to quote um, Denson Fong, CEO of NVIDIA, kids shouldn't learn to code. That's what he said over, you know, on his last talk. He was saying the way AI is progressing is everybody in the world is a programmer. Computers can now speak human. Um, and, and the transition to that, what you were just talking about with the Wall Street Journal and, and competition is there's a, the world's shifting really quickly, and most people are not really thinking about it enough. Or, or maybe they are. If they're, they're listening to this, like you're, you're a step ahead, you know, you're trying to stay ahead of the game. But, you know, even, you know, let's take this, OpenAI. Uh, that's clearly been, you know, they've got tons of revenue, um, big partnerships. But Microsoft just partnered with their competitor, Mistral, in France. And they have their own open source and proprietary models. Um, and so, so effectively, I'm not going to call it magic, but I mean, that is kind of magic. Like we can talk to non-biological elements to control them. I mean, that's what these chips are for. That's what this AI is for is helping automate our world and, and have it do more for us with, um, you know, limited and scarce resources. Um, and, and so just two things real quick to add to that is this next layer of AI is going to be, um, multimodal. Um, so that's the ability to process, you know, from an input and output, multiple senses at the same time, um, like humans do. This is, um, you know, text, video, sound, you know, temperature, all these different elements um, and understand them. So this is going to increase the training and, and better models, but also allow for incredible real-time benefits, like human, the robot collaboration and support. Um, this, so this is going to support things in healthcare, like biology, Drug development, like we're 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 entering this this era of of massive acceleration of of benefit. Um, the other side of that is okay. Well, now you can put that on to robots and drones and vehicles, um, and that's called embodiment of AI. And that's a different chipset, a different architecture that's required. That requires more safeguards, connectivity, um, computer vision, and other senses going into it. So that's a whole different model that NVIDIA isn't necessarily, I mean, they, they have an automotive segment, but um, there's a lot that goes into monitoring um, those things as, as they scale. I mean, that's a lot of autonomous decision-making that we're looking to build up. At, and those decisions happen at the nano, the micro, and global scale. Um, so the ecosystem that will grow to support that is going to be a humongous portion of future GDP, when right now it's a tiny portion of GDP, which I think last estimates – um, or around like $115 trillion or so, give or take. So, Zeno, let me ask you this. Going back to uh, where we started, obviously a company like NVIDIA has driven a decent chunk of the S&P 500's return over the past year. But even if you look this year, S&P 500's up 7%. Something like 25% of that return has been driven just by NVIDIA. And from my perspective... I would say overall, the start to 2024 does look a lot like last year, right? Where the top of the S&P 500, the, the mega cap tech companies, the ones involved with a lot of what's going on in AI, they're driving the bulk of returns. And as I was touching on at the top, that has some investors concerned about things like concentration risk and valuations. And I'm going to get into this in more detail uh, in just a bit with State Street's Matt Bartolini, but I would love to hear your take on this. Like, how concerned are you 
with the Magnificent Seven stocks because you just walked through, I thought, really interesting look into the future and where some of this may be heading. And I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're, you're pretty bullish on where all of this is going. And we know the, the largest players in tech are going to be involved here. So not looking to have you offer investment advice, but how do you think investors should be thinking about this? Nate, are we talking about mega cap imperialism? <laughs> <laughs> so, so truly, and, and, and for, for good reason, you know, the world is philosophically and literally being eaten by mega caps right now. I mean, it makes sense in a way that the best of the best scale globally would be the biggest companies and organizations in the world, um, more than even governments. Uh, people often compare like France versus GDP, even, you know, Europe versus market caps. And I'm like, yeah, the best of the best scale across the globe could be the biggest. I mean, that just is makes sense. Um, um, that's how things work. But yeah, I think, I think portfolio concentration is one thing, right? You know, you're, if you kind of like back into that, um, and these aren't necessarily answers, but just kind of questions to think about is like, okay, so what percentage of total GDP, uh, actual perceived in the near future? Um, what's going to stop these mega cap companies from becoming Titan caps? I don't know if that's the term, but $10 trillion. Um, are there contenders? Are there regulatory impacts? Um, and what are other companies that are actually going to benefit from that? Um, you know, if you look at the business models of the MAG-7, you know, a lot of it's very, um, and, and for good reason, uh, consumer focused. Um, some of them have business models that might be uh, impacted by open source alternatives coming down the pipeline that negates the need to rely on them as much, both from a hardware and software perspective. Um, and, you know, you kind of you kind of have to ask yourself, okay, well, people have been used to free for many years, but now they're willing to pay up for some AI tools. Are they going to willing to pay up to preserve privacy and have their own AI stack that has their own best interest first serving a larger organization? And and what are the competitive dynamics with that? So I, the way I'm looking at it right now is is yes, like I, the mega caps are where they are for good reason, but I think that there is another play to be made that there are companies and an ecosystem that aren't valued as high, that don't have as high, you know, analyst consensus over the, these tailwinds that are coming through, um, that could also become, you know, parts of these larger, you know, the spies that, that are maybe mid or, or smaller caps that have really good positioning to, to be a part of this automation. And, and if you look at where growth is coming over in the coming years, you know, consumer markets are stressed pretty thin, debt expense ratios are climbing. Um, there's, uh, you know, for Apple, for example, like they're facing threats in China, services business is, is getting some flack for their take rates. And, and all these things are things that are, are, are not even really baked in. I mean, they're, they're all kind of, you know, Apple's been declining over the last couple of years, but their stock is, is, is going up. Um, and, and they've really been squeezing the, the, the juice out of earnings by reducing costs, but there's only so long you can do that. Um, so yeah, I would say, you know, there is definitely a play that, um, you know, there, there should be a transition to kind of techno hedge yourself here outside of uh, outside of the mag seven for example but it sounds like you're not necessarily suggesting to move away from say a market cap weighted s p 500 etf it's just that investors should also be looking elsewhere in addition to that is that fair yeah i, I mean i think i think this this ai and robotics and automation coming through the pipeline will benefit all companies and organizations I would say that maybe expectations are still fairly high for some of these mega cap companies on kind of like a two-year horizon. So maybe that's something to think about into getting more equal weight or 
kind of thematic exposure into an area that that is kind of not guaranteed, but more likely to continue seeing growth and and product uh, or pricing resilience for what they're building out and what's what's really happening with you know the, uh, automation, energy transition, and all these different elements coming together. But you know they're they're clearly you know big tech is still being used, and until it's replaced, it's hard to say that. But if something changes and it happens fast, it, it could happen really fast. So that's the other angle to think about is, is maybe diversify a bit away from that, but not necessarily, you know, abandon ship. Well, Zeno, fun conversation this week. You clearly know this space uh, inside and out, which I uh, certainly appreciate. But great having you back on the podcast, and uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Always excited to be on. That was Zeno Mercer, Senior Research Analyst at Vetify. Growth and innovation, two words that best describe the ETF industry. However, rapid growth and innovation creates a critical need for financial advisors and industry practitioners, education. Enter the ETF Institute, the first and only independent organization providing industry professionals and financial advisors with certification, education, and training on ETFs. Learn more about the certified ETF advisor designation by visiting CETF.org. I'm now joined by Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors, who currently offers nearly 140 ETFs, over $1.2 trillion in assets. That, of course, includes the Spider S&P 500 ETF, ticker SPY, which was the first U.S.-listed ETF, and now the first ETF to eclipse $500 billion in assets. Uh, it hit that mark last week. And Matt is now on the line with me from Boston. Matt, always uh, great having you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, Nate, great to have, great to be on. Thanks for having me on. All right, so uh, SPY did just become the first ETF to hit that five hundred billion dollar milestone, and you know it's interesting. I was looking back, so assets have nearly doubled from five years ago, and clearly the market has been a big driver here, which uh, you and I will get into, but. I'd love to have you just put this in context for us. I mean, SBY was the first U.S.-listed ETF uh, back in 1993, and here we are, uh, what, 31 years later, it's still the market leader by something like, you know, nearly $60 billion in assets or so. So so put this in context for us. Yeah, I think it's just a great milestone. It really reflects the longevity of not only SPY itself, but the ETF industry. You know, obviously, there's a lot of competition for assets out in the marketplace from different types of strategies. And it just sort of signifies the uh, ongoing usage of ETFs within portfolios. And I think you, you know, hit on that acutely well in terms of how the market did assist in this asset race of $500 because, you know, equity markets have done so well pretty much since this fund was launched, but obviously in the last couple of years. But SPY really represents a really diverse user base that showcases all the different types of buying behavior patterns that ETF investors can enjoy. You have those large-scale institutional investors that are structuring things like relative value arbitrage hedges versus futures because of the liquidity and transparency of the ETF. You have you know, long-to-lend activity, securities lending activity, you know, being able to short the ETF uh, to you know, tax 
loss harvesting the single name equities and then applying a beta hedge and then, you know, unwinding that in the new year. And that's why we do see some seasonality as it flows as well. But then also long term buy and hold. And then, you know, SPY is even uh, pretty integral and central to a lot of what the defined outcome funds are doing because they use SPY's robust options market to construct their hedges. And so I think just it's really reflective of the ongoing usage, really the flexibility, the optionality, the customization that ETFs have to provide, but also transparency, cost efficiency, and naturally the liquidity as well. You know, it's funny, you may or may not be aware of this, but last year I made a, uh, a very bad prediction that SPY would lose its ETF crown. I, I, I said a competing ETF might pass it in assets, and uh, you all are making me look bad. <laughs> but I always <laughs> stay honest here. And so uh, let, let me be the first to say, A, I was wrong, uh, and it looks like I'll continue to be wrong, and, and B, congratulations. I, I do think it's a big milestone, and I think that's well said um, in terms of just the variety of use cases for an ETF like SPY. And the, the innovator uh, funds, that's a good example. Just I don't think people realize how uh, prominent this ETF is just across the ETF ecosystem. But I, I think even bigger picture, this is just such a continued endorsement of the ETF structure itself and, and really the, uh, the ETF industry as a whole. So again, congratulations on the, uh, on the milestone. Um, all right, so we, we mentioned performance and I, I do wanna get into the performance of the S&P 500 and I think more importantly, the top heaviness of that index and, and the so-called concentration risk, which is a hot topic right now. And it's something that you did a full deep dive into uh, last week. I thought you wrote a really nice piece on this. And, you know, I, I guess there's a number of different directions we, we can go here, but I'll just start that if you look at what has driven the performance of the S&P 500, we know that some of the largest mega cap tech names have been huge factors here. And so right now, if you look, the top 10 holdings in the S&P 500 represent about 32% of the total index, which means the concentration at the top is now, I show higher than in the dot-com bubble. Um, and, right. you know, I think that's the big headline, right? Or, or I would say the big scare headline right now, because investors all know what happened following the dot-com bubble. And so, how concerned are you about all of this? Is this something that you think investors should be worried about? So I'm not concerned about it as if it was a indicator of doom or a you know, forward-looking harbinger of doom that you know, the market is going to fall because the last time this happened was the dot-com bubble and that was you know, very, very bad for everybody. Um, there's actually no connection. And we did this in the, in the blog post that I wrote. So if you look at the levels of uh, market concentration and then the subsequent six and 12 month forward looking returns, there's no connection. There's no correlation. The ARD square metrics are basically zero. So there's no relationship to what you have for concentration levels at the top and then the subsequent forward looking returns. Also, in years where the, the market was up, the um, sort of contribution from the top 10 was only on average about 29%. Clearly, last year's was well above that. Uh, it was like 63%. But on the way down, the top 10 contributes to only about 12% of the market losses. So I wouldn't just use one data point of the dot-com era, which was driven by mania, the bubble. This is not really being driven by a mania bubble type of uh, fervor. It's being driven by these firms are generating more cash flows and earnings than the rest of the market. 
you know, if we look at last year, uh, from an earnings per share perspective, you know, these firms contributed, you know, something to the effect of, you know, 31% of earnings per share growth in the S&P 500, and the rest of the market had negative 5%, right? So they returned value, the rest of the companies didn't, they've been rewarded. So I'm not really concerned that the harbinger of doom that the market's going to fall just because we surpassed the dot-com level, but I am concerned that this has an impact on portfolio construction, namely diversification, right? And that's the whole emphasis for my concern is that it's impacted your diversification of your portfolio. Well, let's get into that. And um, I, I guess I'll just say, you know, for the record, and I've said this before, when you invest in the S&P 500, this is what you sign up for, right? You get the benefit on the way up when we have periods like this. And unless you have a crystal ball, I think it's very difficult to properly time when to when to get out. So I, I just want to state that. And I, the other point I would make here, too, right. is the one that you hit on in that if we want to compare this to the dot com uh, bubble or, or not compare it. The the difference here is if you look at the underlying fundamentals of these companies, and, and, and you said that well. If you look at the, the cash flow from these companies and the earnings, this looks different than a lot of the companies we saw in the late 90s. Now, to, to your point, I think really the takeaway here should be not that you have to avoid the S&P 500. And, and I was actually visiting with uh, Zeno Mercer from Betify earlier. We touched on this, but I don't think it's that you need to in, uh, avoid the S&P 500, but you need to make sure your portfolio is diversified overall. And and so if we assume that, what are some considerations for investors, Matt? I mean, is it as simple as adding things like mid caps and, and small caps and perhaps some international? What, what should investors be thinking about here? Yeah, and, and that's the thing too. Is like it's not you shouldn't just get rid of your S and P five hundred, right? That's still a core part of your portfolio. That it's now becoming a, a bigger part than you normally would have had. And I think if we just look at it historically, you know, when we talk about diversification, if concentration is impacted, your geographical diversification. So the S and P five hundred is up thirty eight percent in standard twenty twenty. The Acquiax US is only up five percent. The top ten names now make up uh, roughly 25% of, or sorry, 20% of all global equity market capitalization. U.S. equities make up 60%. So you're no longer as geographically diversified as you once had been because of this massive concentration. Similarly, from a sector perspective, there are only four sectors in those top 10 names. Only those top 10 are in just four sectors. Typically, it's usually around six. And the four sectors, that's a low. So there's not a lot of diversification from a sector perspective. Even so, two, if you just look at it from a sector perspective, those two, two, of the, two of the sectors make up 25% of the S&P 500 out of just those top 10 names. So you're not really diversified from a sector perspective anymore. Similarly, you're not really diversified from a stylistic perspective because growth exposures by Morningstar definition reflect, represent about 43% of overall S&P 500 exposure. Value is just 21%, and blend is obviously the net, is the difference. But typically, on average, over the last 30 years, it's usually 31% growth, 32% value. So you're no longer really diversified stylistically. And similarly, from a market cap perspective, you know, mid and small caps right now only make up around 7.9% of the S&P 1500. Typically, that's around 11.2%. So you're not really diversified from a cap perspective either if you're just, you know, thinking about it from the total portfolio. So things you can do you know, very easily. <laughs> Add a little bit more mid and small cap back to historical averages. 
add a little bit back to develop XUS, maybe EM. I know that's kind of like losing with the football, going back into international equities. It hasn't really panned out. But again, not looking at it from a return space, but from a diversification space, a long-term perspective. And then, you know, sectors, um, there's some things you could do there around the edges and sort of rebalancing some of the sectors and holding individual ones to make it even more even. That's probably more of an active decision. And then the last one is, again, sort of, you know, now you're getting a little bit more into the active space, but using something that is systematic or fundamental that awaits securities based on things beyond market cap that actually looks at valuations and risk sensitivities, and that can mean either smart beta or active ETFs. So there are things that can be done, and the best part about this is they can all be done with ETFs. It's actually quite easy. To your last point on uh, smart beta ETFs, I'm glad you brought that up because anytime there's a conversation that is this prolific around an investment topic, I always try to think, okay, what is what is the ETF impact here? How does this impact the, the industry at large? And I, I'm not sure if you saw this, but our good friend Dave Nodig tweeted out something to the effect that we could see smart beta 2.0. I think he was saying this could be sort of a uh, resurrection of smart beta ETFs. And I, I thought that was interesting because at least from my perspective, I feel like smart beta has uh, been somewhat left for dead with the rise of active ETFs over the past few years. But do you think we could see a, a real reemergence of smart beta ETFs and in, in areas like you know equal weighting and value tilting, tilting towards small caps? Because that's really what smart beta ETFs specialize in overall. So do you, do you think smart beta ETFs are primed for a comeback here? I think it makes the conversation to maybe utilize the smart data for portfolio far easier. Because you can go and tell someone who's holding, again, broad market cap weighted exposure, uh, and say, look, you're really not that diversified as you want to work. There's perhaps a better way to approach U.S. equity markets that is not so tied to market capitalization that gives you a little bit more diversity from a style and cap perspective. So that conversation, I think, is much easier have because we have such an anomalous period of market concentration. So I do think it does set up some tailwinds for, you know, revival of reconsidering the multi-factor smart beta landscape. And I think that's the one that would be the 2.0. I don't think it'll be your single factors in terms of like, because then you're making an active decision like, oh, I should have a quality or value or an ball or size or what have you. But actually being something that's very core oriented with a low tracking error return differential to the broader market, but it allows you to tilt towards different securities, not so just based on market cap, but perhaps based on a blend of value, quality, and involved things along those lines. Just a couple minutes left, um, and I, I think you were alluding to this, but what about just actively managed ETFs? And, you know, we, we both are well aware, again, of the rise of those products over the past several years. And there's... <sighs> There's distinction here in this category. I mean, you have traditional stock pickers. I think primarily what we've seen the rise of are, are more systematic, active approaches. But do, do you think the the top heaviness of the S&P 500 will be a, a, a contributing factor to this continued rise of active ETFs overall? Yeah, again, I think it helps conversation, right? So an active manager can go and say, look, I'm picking the best stock. If I'm reweighting it, you're not going to have so much concentration. It allows you to have the conversation around why you might consider using active, irregardless of performance trends. And I think that's, again, that's one of the big headwinds on the active U.S. equity front 
is that if we look at some of the performance trends just from last year, uh, U.S. equity managers didn't really do that well. So, you know, if you look at um, in the Morningstar peer group of U.S. large cap lend funds, and this includes mutual funds and ETFs, right? So, we have to take a broad picture of this. Only 20% of those U.S. large cap lend funds beat the S&P 500 that, or beat their prospective benchmark, which is most likely going to be the S&P 500 last year. So there are performance headwinds there. Now, in the multi-factor space, you probably still have some of the multi-factor smart beta. You probably still have some of the same things because the problem is once you deviate from the market cap weighted paradigm, like many of these will, or you have an active risk constraint, it's really hard to not like you, you know, not own the Magnificent Seven. And if you didn't, well, then like you underperform. If you have a risk constraint where you can't go so much overweight Apple or Microsoft, like you're going to be kind of constrained. But to answer your question, because this is a good nuanced topic, it makes that conversation much easier because you have a period of an anomalous behavior where only a few names represent a sizable portion of the global equity markets. And I think the one thing that I'm watching in terms of where does this end or where does this play out, and people always say, you know, things only end badly because otherwise they wouldn't end. I don't think it's going to go that way. I think you're going to see a little meaner version of how fundamental trends brought us to this space. And if you look at the back half of this year, Q3, Q4, what do we start to see? We start to see the other 490 stocks in the S&P 500 start to have stronger earnings growth than the top 10. And those fundamental trends shift, you can see a little bit of a normalization in the market concentration. That's what I'm looking for. And that's another reason why I do not think this is the biggest risk of all time. Yeah, I think that's well said. I think I I think I agree with that. Um, regardless, I will tell you, I'm not betting against SPY anymore. <laughs> so, uh, look, it's, it's like it's like uh, you know, I'm never going to bet against Patrick Mahomes either, right? That's the same idea. That's right. Well, uh, again, congrats on uh, SPY hitting 500 billion. Always enjoy having you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. That was Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors. Ready to level the playing field in your investment journey? Introducing QQQE, Direction's NASDAQ 100 Equal Weighted Index Shares ETF. With QQQE, you're not just investing in big players, you're investing in balance and diversity. The power of equal weighting, seeking equal weighted exposure to all of the NASDAQ 100 stocks. Say goodbye to market cap dominance and hello to a balanced investment strategy. Visit Direction.com now to learn about QQQE, Direction's NASDAQ 100 Equal Weighted Index ETF. Equal opportunities, equal gains. Direction, get out of the ordinary. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's investment objective, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. An investment in the fund involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Distributor, Foresight Fund Services, LLC. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Yang Tang, CEO and co-founder of Arch Indices and Arch Indices Investment Advisors. Yang is building what he calls the next generation of passive index solutions. 
Their first ETF just launched in October of last year. It's the Arch Indices VOI Absolute Income ETF, ticker symbol VWI, which we will be diving into. Uh, Yang is now on the line with me from New York. Yang, it's an absolute pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so uh, I was looking on your website, and I, I love this. I saw that Arch Indices is a true passion project for you. Uh, you said that you founded this company because you wanted to make these next-generation index solutions accessible to everyone. And so I thought, let, let's start there. You've been in some interesting roles in the past at places like Morgan Stanley, Citi, uh, Deutsche. So, so maybe talk about those experiences and then how they led you to this uh, passion project. Yeah, I would love to. I started Arch uh, really, uh, sorry, August 2022 with a former colleague of mine from City, Dr. Jacob Kwa. He's a PhD in math, and between the two of us, we spent a combined 40 years working inside investment banks. Um, our role was to create solutions for institutional clients. I graduated Columbia Business School in 2012. And I started in the associate program at Morgan Stanley, where I was placed on the global macro solutions group. I worked then at Citi, Deutsche, and Credit Ag, and most of my clients were banks, insurers, asset managers. And the purpose of our group was to create structured, bespoke, derivative, and financing solutions that met client needs for asset liability, yield enhancement, capital management, and tactical client needs. So it started as a passion project during COVID, Dr. K and I were talking about just the madness people were doing with their money. And that spawned the question, how will we manage our own money? So we created this just to do that. We felt the best way to manage our personal money was to build optimized portfolios that one, focus on the goal, and two, create the least amount of portfolio volatility. And when you think about all the things that we were doing at banks for large institutional clients, you know, we thought about ways to package that into a more accessible solution and bring that to the entire wealth management and everyday ETF space. Yeah. And before we get into uh, VWI, talk more when you say optimize portfolios. And as I was looking through this, this sort of sounds like uh, smart beta to me, but I, I know there's a lot more to it than that. So maybe explain more what you mean by next generation index solutions and, and optimize portfolios. Yeah, so the, the biggest question we need to think about is how do you weight a portfolio? And that's really where the struggle of passive ETFs come in. An index is really a derivative at the end of the day, but how an index company builds a product for market exposure is very different how you would build a derivative for a client need. So that's what we started thinking about is every component of a portfolio should really have a risk-adjusted contribution. So, you know, it is, it is a variation of smart beta uh, and really around factors. Mm -hmm. So what you're looking for is you're looking for a output, which is a high factor relative to the volatility. And that's what we term the performance ratio. So you want a bunch of assets that have very high performance ratio, but they don't move together, which further reduces portfolio volatility. So obviously, the perfect example of this would be your ETF. So let's walk through that. Again, the Arch Indices VOI Absolute Income ETF, ticker symbol VWI. Uh, explain the goal of this and, and how it's constructed at a high level, and then we can get into some uh, additional detail here. 
Yeah. So VWI is an income ETF. The idea of this is you want current income, but you also want to reduce portfolio volatility. Um, and I would tell everyone that we just crossed $2 million yesterday. We've been in the market close to five months, and it's an all-in-one income solution. We start with dividend stocks, and then we combine that with bond ETFs. So the dividend stocks we include as a screen. It has to be a minimum of $2 billion market cap, $20 million three-month daily average trading volume, a 3% yield, and a five years of regular dividend history. So to note, this is really the eligibility for inclusion. We don't actually exclude any assets if they uh, fall one of those criteria, unless there's a corporate action. We then pick 12 bond ETFs that represent the key segment of the U.S. dollar bond market, and that's the eligibility for an optimization. So right now, up that, there's probably uh, close to 600 total securities, but any given moment, you only need about 60 to 120 to create the optimal portfolio. Um, and what's great about this is that the last rebalance on February 8th, the index portfolio yield is 7%. It's 79% dividend stocks right now, 21% bond ETFs, and it's high income, it's low volatility, and has potential for capital appreciation. As you go through that, one thing that comes to mind for me, is there any sort of uh, quality filter on the individual stock holdings? Because obviously, if you're screening for companies paying above a 3% dividend, and, and you walk through some other screens there as well around you know size and liquidity, but if, if you're just screening for a 3% dividend yield, you could end up with some value trap type plays in there. So is there any sort of quality screen? There's not. And the reason we don't have that is when you think about the process, we're not optimizing for income outright. So one of the biggest things that you mentioned is uh, a big fear of dividend investors. The last thing you want is, you know, 22%, 25% dividend stocks that, you know, decline 30, 50, 70%. That kind of defeats the purpose of being an income investor. What we actually optimize for is the performance ratio. It's looking at the yield relative to its volatility. So your first line of defense is the market. At any time when there is investor debate about, you know, the sustainability of the dividend where a company's headed, the volatility increases. Mm -hmm. So when the volatility increases, it automatically becomes less attractive in our optimization. So what we end up with is usually a lot of assets that either, one, have little investor debate and very high performance ratio, or the yield is so high that it negates the investor debate. That's well said. Um, no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, so yeah, yeah. So that, that also creates a second. Um, the market defense is also a second barrier against the human bias of what we define as quality. And, you know, I think even within the factor investing world, quality is a very hard one to define. You know, some people look at leverage ratio. Some people look at a profitability ratios. Some people look at, uh, you know, sustainability of payouts and such. But realistically, you know, all of those things are fundamental and they're backward looking. Whereas in our methodology, we allow the market to dictate what happens to securities. And just to be clear, I'm assuming everything you just walked through there, that applies to the bond side of the equation as well in terms of the criteria for the types of bond ETFs used? Yeah, so we picked 12. Um, Ten of them are Vanguard ETFs. We selected them really on three criteria. The first is the liquidity. The second is the sector we're looking to represent, and the third is the cost. 
Um, so 11 of the 12 are either the most liquid or the low and or their lowest cost in their space. Uh, one of them is, you know, a bit more bespoke is the AAA CLO ETF. Uh, and that one is newer. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to capture over 90 percent of the U.S. dollar bond market and allow investors to have exposure to that to offset some of the volatility of the dividend stock holding. Yeah, and just to give listeners a, uh, a flavor, I was looking at the, the top 10 holdings. So number one is that uh, AAA CLO ETF you mentioned, JAAA from Janice Henderson. That has nearly a 13% weighting. There's also an ETF like VTIP, uh, the Vanguard yep. Short-Term Tips ETF, USHY, the iShares Broad High Yield Corporate Bond ETF, and then uh, stocks like Altria, and British American tobacco. It's a, it's a really uh, interesting mix. Um, Yang, if, if I were to try to boil this down, I, I, you know, one of the, the areas that comes to mind for me as I look at this ETF is minimum volatility. And I'd be curious how you would suggest that it, VWI compares to a MinVol ETF, such as, say, USMV, the iShares MinVol ETF, right? Obviously, VWI holds bonds, so, so we know that's different, but how similar or dissimilar is this compared to a MinVol approach? Yeah, so the MinVol approach is a little bit different than ours because it uses volatility as the factor. So USMV really takes the approach where you have 600 securities and you're looking for the basket of the lowest volatility. So the key difference is there is no goal. The goal is to find the lowest volatility portfolio, whereas we have a goal. The goal is to generate income for you. That's the first key difference. The second is around portfolio construction. Uh, USMB uses something in the industry which is called a matrix optimizer. It uses a linear algebra approach to optimization. We actually went a different approach to optimization. We built a recursive approach, which is thinking of it more as a derivative tree and looking for an optimal outcome. And when you talk about portfolio construction, again, obviously this holds bonds. This is a multi-asset ETF. And so how do you see this being used in a portfolio? Because I'll tell you, in talking to advisors, I sometimes get the sense that there's some confusion around products such as this, where advisors don't quite know, does this go in the equity sleeve of a portfolio? Does this go in the fixed income sleeve? Is it both? Uh, could this be an alternative investment? And so how should investors and advisors think about incorporating this into a portfolio? Yeah, I think the easiest way to think about this is it's a package portfolio. It's a package portfolio that gives you income and it dynamically rebalances. So I think traditionally people thought about things as, you know, equities or stocks, but there's actually quite a few people out there that hold preferred stocks. And preferred stocks are, you know, kind of the same idea, right? They're not really fixed income. They're not really equities either. And, you know, so it's really designed for people that want an income exposure. Um, it's targeted towards, you know, people that are looking to generate passive income at a different phase in life. It's targeted towards capital preservation. It's also targeted towards uh, people that are looking for a lower risk uh, profile. So those are the three main ways. Um, you know, and I think the other way is, you know, you can also think of this as an income replacement. So if you're sitting there, you're struggling with today, what is, which dividend stocks should I think about? You know, how should I weight stocks versus bonds? How should I think about, you know, X, Y, Z exposure? How should I think about the portfolio volatility? This gives that to you in a package solution. Yang, just a few minutes left here uh, before I let you go. One of the 
threads I've had throughout the podcast today is around the top heaviness of the S&P 500. And obviously, your ETF is rules-based, right? It's index-based, and so you're not making active decisions uh, here. But I'd love to hear your thoughts around that because, uh, you know, this is a topic that is front of mind for for just about every advisor and and, and investor. And so is that concentration risk uh, within the S&P 500 something that you're concerned about? Does that bolster the case for an ETF such as yours? How are you viewing this right now? I think 100% bolsters the case for our ETF. The reason we started this company was we saw a similar problem as everyone's talking about today, which is how do you weight the portfolio? So when you think about market cap or you think about equal weight, it's a size bias. So it's not that the concentration is the problem. It's why is that so concentrated? And you're concentrated around a size factor. Unless you specifically wanted a size factor, the market cap and the equal weight approach is not really the optimal way to go about it. We build our portfolios around risk-based contribution. So if something is concentrated, we can say, well, it's concentrated because it has a great performance ratio and the volatility correlation profile that we want. And if you know something is concentrated for that reason, that's a good reason to be concentrated. But if you're concentrated solely on arbitrary based on size, you know, that may not be the best. And, you know, also equally, right, the equal weight portfolio is problematic because not all of those assets deserve to have the same weight. Such an interesting uh, conversation. I'm sure one I'll be digging in much more <laughs> in the uh, future. But, Yang, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, re- really enjoyed connecting. Best of luck to you and your firm on this uh, ETF journey that you're now on. And uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. That was Yang Tang, CEO and co-founder of Arch Indices and Arch Indices Investment Advisors. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. Equities are the building blocks of any successful portfolio. Advisors must understand the best way to wield equities if they want to succeed. Join Vetify and other industry-leading experts on Wednesday, March 13th for their Equity Symposium. Register for free at etftrends.com slash webcast slash equities dash symposium dash 2024. Next week, I will be joined by financial regulation expert Sean Tuffy to discuss the uh, ETF multi-share class structure and some other interesting ETF topics. And then CFA's Ben Harburg will spotlight the Core Values Alpha Greater China Growth ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.